0: I want to begin this sermon, though, before we get to Matthew 5, by reflecting on a story of Jesus' encounter with a lawyer. This lawyer comes up to Jesus and he asks him, How, how, sir, do I inherit eternal life? I'd like to inherit eternal life. Notice the word inherit there. He wants to turn it into a legal transaction. He wants to make sure he's going to get this at, at the end. But Jesus says to him, Do you want to inherit life, eternal life? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a simple, clear answer. Uh, but the lawyer's not done. He he wants to, he wants to 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 earn a trophy. He wants to get a trip to heaven. He wants a reward. He wants to make it happen on his terms. And so he continues his discussion. It's it's all it's almost as though he is caught up in what some would call a, a punishment and reward system of a religion, one that points towards a way of getting what you want by earning your way there jesus has demonstrated though that if you love god you love neighbor as self that in the very moment you begin to live that way you have experienced eternal life you've experienced something of what it means to be in heaven Jesus' answer to the lawyer is essentially by learning to love your neighbor you will discover that you are already in what we call the life eternal what we would Described as heaven. I want to be very clear that Jesus is not critiquing Judaism. Sometimes, at least I heard this growing up in the church. Sometimes I heard, and it's still out there, that, that Jesus is pushing away the old religion and bringing in a new one. As a matter of fact, he's actually relying on the religion of his birth, the religion that nurtured him, to make this very point. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You see, he's not critiquing it and pushing it away. He's bringing it into the light, the full light of day, so that we can learn to live in a way that indeed points toward eternal life. But like I said, the the lawyer, he's not satisfied. He's He's turning this conversation into an argument. He wants to know then, after Jesus says all of that, well then, who is my neighbor? Have you ever done that? Have you ever been in an argument and, or, or a discussion and just not really looked to reach a solution or come to a conclusion but just kind of turn it into a, a never-ending argument? That's what he's doing. He wants to know who's my neighbor. Preachers get caught up in this and just going on and on and on. Politicians are really good at it. You've probably noticed that lately turn it into a conversation that they're sure they can, an argument they're sure they can win. There's no doubt that you've experienced this even in the toughest community on earth, your family, your closest friends, parents and kids, wives and husbands, moms and dads, same-gender couples, all of us are pretty familiar with this tactic. The ability to work through all of this is, is, is a skill that often takes years and patience to develop. In relationship, there is a tendency to argue, to protect, to blame. At its lowest level, there is this desire sometimes to name-call and insult and put down. Charlie Brown once told his friend Linus, you remember the the comic strip Charlie Brown Peanuts, he once told his friend Linus, my grandma and grandpa have been married for 50 years. And Linus says, wow, are they lucky. And, and Charlie says, my grandma says it has nothing to do with luck. It's all about skill. <laughs> there's, there's truth there in that simple little, little comic strip. If you've been married for five decades, if you've been married for five years, if you've been married for five days, you've already discovered it takes skill, not just luck, to make that relationship work, to keep it sustained. And, of course, here's kind of the flip side of that. I've known some, some, some couples who've been married for 50 years who were kind of in a non-marriage marriage. They, they really didn't take the time ever to be in real conversation, to face real issues, to find a real and lasting love because they're afraid that in having that conversation with the other, they might be revealed too for who they really are. I remember a young couple coming to see me many years ago. They were getting ready for their, their wedding day, and we'd gone through the premarital uh, work that we require here at Country Club Christian Church. And I, I looked at them, I said, tell me what you all fight about. And their eyes got really big, and, and the, uh, the groom said, we never fight, do we, honey? We never fight? No, never, do we? And she, her eyes were just as big, and she said, no, honey, we never fight. And I said, what's wrong with your relationship? And I was serious, because if there aren't things worth wrestling with, Maybe there's something wrong with the relationship itself. Jesus takes relationships seriously. Even if the other is, even if this lawyer is trying to trick him into an unending argument, he won't allow himself to get caught up in that because he cares about this lawyer. And instead he tells a story. And you know the story that Jesus told. There was a man on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho who was beaten by a group of criminals. They strip him, rob him, leave him for dead, bleeding. Lying in a ditch. Uh, Thirty-five of us from Country Club Christian Church last year toured around the Holy Land. We made that that same journey up and down that road at least three times. And even though it's a modern four-lane highway now, you can imagine what it was like on foot two thousand years ago, and how easy it would be for a, a group of crooks to hide behind a, uh, an outcropping in the rocks and to jump an unsuspecting traveler. Even if he was armed, there's no way he could protect himself. That's what's happened. As you remember the story, a lawyer comes along, he's too busy, doesn't have time to check on the guy in the ditch, keeps on going. Then a priest, a preacher, a theologian, a a pastor-like person comes along, he's too busy, he keeps on going. The third one comes, and it's a Samaritan. You remember, the Samaritan stops, bandages the wound, picks up the injured man, carries him to an inn provides payment for his, for his care, even says to the innkeeper, care for him as long as is necessary, I will pay for it all. He expects nothing in return. This is the one we call the Good Samaritan. We name hospitals after him, Good Samaritan Hospital. We've, our church partnered with the Church of Southern Africa to create the Samaritan Care Center in East London, South Africa, a beautiful place where Rose, our friend Rose Mitchell, cares for 16 patients at this Samaritan Care Center hospice. But beyond that, there are about 110, 120 patients in the community who are no longer dying as a result of HIV-AIDS, are actually surviving and doing well because this, this care center, this one that you helped build, is now working in the community to make sure that people have enough medicine, the ones who are fighting this terrible disease. Never, though, or at least rarely, when we see the name Good Samaritan or Samaritan Care Center, do we think of it as a person who is our enemy. But in Jesus' day, a Samaritan was hated by Jesus' friends. A Samaritan was considered to be a half breed A Samaritan was considered to be someone who really wasn't faithful to their religion. A Samaritan was someone they would just as soon as kill I told this story, I don't know, 11 or 12 years ago, in a sermon, and I retitled it, The Parable of the Good Al-Qaeda Man. I got some comments, as you can imagine. In fact, one person said, can we go to, to coffee and talk about this? I said, absolutely. And he said, here's my concern about the story and the way you told it. Samaritans were good people. And I said, exactly, exactly. They were hated and seen as enemies. Jesus uses that person to illustrate God's view of humanity. Even though we may have good reason to point at as an enemy and say, that one is my enemy. From the perspective of heaven, it's a completely different view. Jesus wants the lawyer. Jesus wants his followers. Jesus wants us to see that all of humanity is seen by God as children of heaven. Jesus tells this story to the lawyer to make the simple yet unbelievably difficult point that the ones we name as enemies are also neighbors. He makes it clear in Matthew 5 that God's love is not reserved for the good guys alone. I hope you heard it as Kathy read, For God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. It's a way of saying God's grace is given to all and is for all. There's no one ever outside the grace of God. The mentality that, 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 that seems to be created among so many of us, and I'm counting myself in this, trust me on that, especially during intense political seasons like this one, is to turn the world into an us versus them. Well, they're the problem. They're the problem. We're taking our country back. No, we're hanging on to our country. No, we're doing this. It's, I don't know about you. We're barely into August. I'm tired of it already. Us versus them. And it's not just the United States. It's a problem in our world. (laughs) That's that's why I love the quote that's on the front of your bulletin. You want to turn and look at that for a moment. The Bible, it's from G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite theologians, a poet from from Great Britain 120 years ago. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies probably because generally they are the same people. (laughs) There's some truth there. Some very serious truth there. We'll get into that issue in a moment about our, our next-door neighbor and how we can learn to love her or him. But I want us to stay in this uncomfortable place where we're called by our Lord and Savior to love our enemies. What does that mean? How do we do it? Jesus makes it clear that we're to do this because this is what God is like. God does not look down the world and see borderlines. God does not look down the world and see different races, religions. God sees God's children. So Nate came by last night after he'd gotten off his work at at Nordstrom, where he's a fashion consultant, doing great work there. He tends to arrive around our house right around 6, 630. I'm not quite sure why he stops by then. Julie was fixing chicken burgers or something, and he sat down and had one with us. And then we turned on the Olympics and watched the Olympics, and there was one of the competitors was a man from Brazil who had an Italian name, first name, and a Japanese last name. And we kind of laughed and said, you know, that's a pretty good picture of the world these days, isn't it? And that's a pretty good picture of the way God sees us. It's not that he's Italian or Japanese or Brazilian. He's a child of God. A creation. From God's very hand, God looks at the world and sees God's children. At the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, there's a promise that God will make all things new. And the word there, when it says all things in Greek, it means all things. Rocks and rivers, oceans and streams. It means bears and porcupines. It means platypuses and penguins. It means, it means Democrats and Republicans. It means KU Jayhawks and Mizzou Tigers. It means fascists and everybody else and you name it. It means all of us. All of the world, all of creation will be made new. Christians and Jews, Muslims and Hindus, all of us will be made new. This is the singular promise of of salvation. In the end, it's not going to be about how good you are or how how good anyone else is. It will be about how good God is. And that, my sisters and brothers, is where the serious difficulty comes into play. If God loves everyone and God does, how do we do the same? How how, how do we put that into practice? Well, oftentimes what we do is we avoid trying to do that and instead find a scapegoat, find an enemy that we can focus our anger upon and say, she's the issue, no, no, he's the problem. And then we can sort of be guaranteed of our our own self-righteousness. You know, on Good Friday, when Jesus proclaimed on the cross, Father, forgive them. It may have been the single most powerful sermon ever preached. And we really ought to spend a lot of time asking, who is Jesus saying needs forgiveness? Is it the disciples? His friends? The women who've come to see him? The soldiers, perhaps? Pilate? Judas? The chief priests? The religious leaders of the day? It's a long list of folks. Who is he calling upon God to forgive unfortunately the church for hundreds of years said oh it's the jews judas was a jew peter was a jew it's the jews the jews were the problem the jews were the real problem in fact i don't know if this, i hope this isn't still true but for a thousand years or so especially after the Crusades started our jewish brothers and sisters were afraid to come out on good friday for the way that christians often would be whipped up into a frenzy of anger We don't have to look very hard to find example after example after example after example leading all the way up to the Holocaust of the way Jews were mistreated and persecuted at the hands of Christians throughout the centuries. Jesus died on the cross proclaiming the one message he came to give the world, forgive. God forgive them. God forgive the worst in us. God help us to forgive the worst in those around us our enemy, and here's where I'm going with this sermon, to forgive the worst, and this is the hardest, in our neighbor, in our spouse, or a parent, or our child. God, help us to forgive the worst we see in those we love the most so that they can forgive the worst in us. This kind of forgiveness, this kind of love, takes courage, and patience to practice. Yet Jesus invites us, because Jesus loves all, to love our enemies, to love our families, to love our neighbor. The problem then really gets, gets more clear when we realize that something that Stanley Hauerwasa, an ethicist at Duke, said is true. <laughs> A people of truth is sure to have enemies. If we speak the truth, we won't be safe if we name what is true, there will be people who may often want to, not just psychologically and verbally, but sometimes even physically. And we can think of hundreds of examples in today's world who will want to attack us and hurt us. But consider Jesus' first sermon. In Luke chapter 4, he stands up in a synagogue and says, Today the word of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, sight to the blind, release to the captives. It's from the prophet Isaiah. At the end of that sermon, the congregation tries to kill him. You see, when we speak the truth, and that's what was happening with Jesus, when he spoke the truth, he was challenging the status quo of the day. And oftentimes, when people feel challenged in that way, they want to push back and do harm. To me, this is the most difficult part of Jesus' teaching. To speak the truth does does not mean we are guaranteed safety. We are not told that living this way will keep us from harm. But the Sermon on the Mount gives us the path to follow. If if we're willing to find the courage and the patience that we need. Earlier in Matthew 5, there is some teaching from Jesus on what we're to do with those who are angry. And Jesus implores us to be faithful in our marriage vows and to follow him. Doing those things, Jesus is implying, will give us the skills that we need to find the ability to love our enemies. I mean, think about how, how hard it is sometimes. To, maybe y'all are fine. Maybe my family's the only one that isn't, per, isn't, isn't perfect. But think sometimes about how hard it is to love the ones you care for the most. You know, somebody else outside your house says something or does something, you don't know them at all, you kind of can let it slough off. Last week, Julie and I flew out real quick out to Connecticut to see our son Stephen, who was starring, and I'm sorry if I'm bragging a little bit, but he was starring as Richard in Richard III at the Shakespeare Academy of Stratford in, in Connecticut, just outside of New Haven. Great show, great production. He, he really did very well. But on the day that we got there, he took us on a tour around the area and took us to this park where the academy uh, sits, and we, we pulled over. I wasn't quite sure where I was going. I was on this two-lane road, but I pulled off the side. There was no one else, no one else around in this park on this road, and I got out my phone. I was trying and figure out exactly where we were and where to go next. And I looked in my rearview mirror. I saw a car coming up, so I just put my flashers on so he knew I was there. There was nobody else on the road, nobody around. He pulled up right next to me, though, slowed down. He was in a convertible. It was a really nice car. And he screamed at me, Moron! <laughs> in the back seat, Stephen said, Does he know you, Dad? Does he uh... But you know what, It was like no big deal, whatever, thanks, fine, I'm just, I'm just a little lost, trying to check my, my thing here, fine. He drove on around, you know what happens, this, this road kind of loops around in a big circle. I figured out where we were going and I started driving around the circle and sure enough, there was a really nice car, a convertible pulled over on the side of the road and he had his, car, his phone out. I pulled up right next to his car and I was tempted, <laughs> I was tempted, I didn't know, I got two witnesses to prove it. See, that guy? I don't know that guy, I don't care about that guy, he's not in a relationship with me. The people that I care about the most were in the car with me. My son Nate, who had to stay back here to work, I care about the most. I care about my friends and my neighbors, I care about you all. If one of you were to scream at me, moron, I'd be concerned and upset and sad and probably angry. You see, the skills that we need for dealing with the world, for dealing with the folks who might be our enemies, are the skills that we begin and learn to practice with each other and the relationships that we have. That's why Chesterton's quote on the bulletin is so perfect for this sermon. Oftentimes your enemy and your your neighbor are the same. Love your family. Love your mom, your dad, your, your daughter, your son. Love your spouse, your partner, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Love them no matter what. Fight with them, wrestle with them, argue with them. See in their face a reflection of the image of God and you and I We'll have the power, the knowledge, and the skill to love our enemies. I mean, take a moment. Take a moment. Go around the world right now. Can you find an enemy? Brussels? Paris? Nice? Istanbul? Baghdad? Beirut? Orlando? San Bernardino? The list goes on. Can you find an enemy? Our world today needs this word from Jesus as much as it ever has. And what Jesus has done is invited us. Invited us through the love of neighbor, through the love of family, to find the courage and the skill that we need to love everyone. Amen.